Amen. Please be seated. And as you are seated, turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some on a bookshelf in the back. Please grab a Bible and follow along. Uh, maybe you'll turn around, turn, tune in with your tablet or phone or whatever. Uh, but we'll be going through this. There's a lot of, we'll, verse by verse, we have 38 verses to cover today in uh, Genesis chapter 19. Um, if you are with us a few weeks ago before Christmas, we started in, on this passage. Uh, you didn't have to be there then to understand what we're going to go through today. But I promise we're going to come back to the uh, judgment on the city of Sodom. And in part just because the importance of some of the things which God brings uh, to bear upon us as we think through our own Christian life and our own world that we live in. How do we live different and separate from that world? So uh, we're going to go, I'm going to read 1 through 13 right now. We'll go through the whole thing by the end of our time today. And then I'll, uh, 1 through 13 and then 23 through 29. And then later on we'll go through the rest of the verses. So this is God's word. Listen, to, hear God's word today. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, so we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So fast forward over to verse 23, we see the actual destruction of Sodom. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of, those, of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow 
when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your text, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. God, we need to see how we take a text like Genesis 19 and apply it to our lives, apply it into our families, apply it into our marriages. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give guidance and help with such a, such a big task, but also we're confident that, that that's what you do, and that's what you do in your spirit. So speak through me to your people. Father, help us to receive your word to understand and apply. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, nothing is so terrifying to us and to our minds as if something bad would happen to our family. And you can think about your children, your spouse, your parents. We, we fear the accidents that could happen, the sicknesses that might pop up, anything that would take them from us or would even hold them back in life. And as we continue our study through Genesis 19, you know, as we look at the judgment of Sodom, Today we come face to face with a different kind of threat to our families and to our children. And it's a threat of a world that wants to suck them in and suck them into, the, into their world. To not give them a future and a hope with God. I want to recount what's happened. Again, we covered a lot of this in a past sermon back in December. But just a bit of review. As we come to Genesis 19, this is the final account of a man named Lot. He was the nephew of the Jewish patriarch Abraham. And together, following God's command, they left uh, their homeland, Ur of the Chaldees, and they traveled into the promised land. And, and over time, as they prospered in this promised land, they grew uh, flocks and servants and those things, and they found that they couldn't uh, stay together. They couldn't stay in the promised land. And Lot um, moved on to Sodom. Now, by this time in his life, Lot was a successful man. We have every indication that he was a, uh, had political influence and that he had vast amounts of wealth. We also see that he had a wife. He had two daughters. And there was so much that was going for him. But as we come to the um, Genesis, the passage today, Genesis 19, we see things begin to unravel and unravel very quickly. And we even see the gigantic moral gaps inside of his life. Even though he knew God, um, many of his decisions were made out of a desire for worldly success. And as we will see today, you know, when the, when the dust settles, everything is, is gone. Now, we learned last time that Lot tried to stand on the fence Right, tried to stay on the fence. He, he didn't really want to commit his ways to God, but he didn't like everything that was in the city. And so he decried the, the violence um, of the city, and the Bible even calls him a righteous man. But on the other side, we see that he gets so caught up with the wealth of the city, he couldn't pull himself away as he needed to. Now, back as you go back to verse 1, you see the arrival of these two angels inside the city of Sodom. And uh, Lot brings them into um, his home. And, and, and the men of the city threatened to do all kinds of evil acts upon him and all kinds of evil acts uh, upon these angels that, that are there. 
Even though Lot tries to protect him, in the end, his life is at risk. And so if you remember verses 12 and 13, we read a minute ago, we see God's pronouncement of judgment upon uh, this city. And he also offers a way of salvation to Lot together with his family. God is going to judge the city, but he gives a way of escape to Lot. Now, Lot had been in the city of Sodom for years, and he'd raised his family there. And after years of being there, certain attitudes and desires, they take root. They change our habits. And what happens to Lot and his family is absolutely devastating. And it's a devastating um, effect on his legacy. If you look at verse 14, you see what happens when he did go to speak with his family about the escape which was given. Verse 14, we read this, The Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. His sons-in-law, they would die in the judgment of Sodom. And they died because they didn't listen to the warning that they were given. I mean, it's obvious that something had happened. Some people had come in the city. There had been a, a flash mob that existed to do some awfully evil things. That The people who were part of that had been turned blind and were groping at this door. You know, something was happening and, and Lot explains it to them. You need to leave the city. And when they hear that, he speaks prophetically to them. When they hear that, they have... They think he's joking. And so while Lot and his daughters, they're going to escape this judgment that these men will not. And it's a tragedy. If you can jump all the way forward to verse 30, and you can see how it worked out for the family. After the destruction of Sodom, his daughters are suddenly single, without future marriage prospects. The city is gone. His sons-in-law are gone, and his daughters want children. And so the story um, is a pretty vile story, starting verse 38 through 38, how they trick him into having children, trick Lot into having children with them. I don't have time to read it or go through it today. But it shows us how far they fell, and it shows how far Lot had fallen. It shows how much had been lost. I mean, it shows the tragedy of this whole thing about Lot and his family. Let's talk about his other family member who's part of this, and that's his wife. And she's mentioned in verse 26. Verse 26 says, But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Why a pillar of salt? Well, and what was wrong with this? If you jump back to verse 17, you see that when they were escaping, they were given a command, an instruction. The angel said to Lot, they said, Escape for your life. Do not look back. Or stop anywhere in the valley, escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Lot's wife looks back and it's tragic. We don't know much about her, but it's very likely that she traveled with Lot from um, Ur of the Chaldees. Traveled with Abraham and Sarah as well. We can only imagine, after all this time, Lot's, Lot's sense of grief and loss and the way it changed him. I mean, it's devastating loss. Now, why did she turn back to the city? Jesus speaks about it a bit um, in Luke chapter 17. This is one of those really short, memorizable Bible verses, right? And in Luke 17, 32, he says, remember Lot's wife. He goes on to explain a little bit after that. 
by saying this, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, why did she turn around other than she loved the city and she didn't want to leave it? Her heart was more with the city, even with his wickedness, than it was with the Lord. She wanted to keep her old way of life, her old friends, her old patterns. And even if it left her wrapped up with the evils of that city, she was just drawn to it. And she lost her life for the love of the city. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life, Jesus says, will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, there's a lot to learn in these situations, but I, I want to focus on Lot here. Right? Lot is, humanly speaking, the main human actor in Genesis chapter 19. Now, his sons-in-law, they make their choices. His daughters, that they make their choices, and his wife makes her own choice, and ultimately he's not responsible for their choices. But what gripped me as I was just studying this passage and why I ended up breaking Genesis 19 up into two sermons, um, was just as a husband and a father and a pastor, was just seeing how Lot had laid the groundwork for so many of the decisions inside this chapter. I mean, he's responsible for his own choices, not theirs. But the tragedy of all around him was directly connected with his own decisions. Kind of laid a groundwork for a lot of these things. And there's such tragedy in it. But in all of it, it points to the importance of investing in the spiritual welfare of our family. I was so struck in it that I thought, let's, let's talk about that today. Now, before I do so, I want to make it plain that, that parents are not ultimately responsible for their children's salvation. You know, salvation is a gift of God's sovereign work inside the person's life. And after years of, of my observations, interacting with you, talking about other things, I mean, some things remain a mystery to me and how God works and the life of covenant children is one of those things which I continue to live with wonder in. But we do know as parents we have faithfulness. Um, we have a calling. We set a context for a lot of the decisions that are made. And if you're a Christian, you want your children to know the blessings of following Jesus. Right? If you're a Christian, you want your spouse to know Jesus as well. You want, to know his, you want them to know his love. You want them to know his gospel. And as a church, we want to see children to grow in the Lord. You know, a little bit ago, towards the beginning of the service, Pastor Doug was praying. There were so many little kids cooing and calling, and one of them had hiccups. And, I mean, it was, it was, it was so cute, right? And, and it's just that, that joy uh, that we have in, you know, the children and, and part of our um, congregation, and it's a greater joy when we see them trusting Christ and growing, making profession of their faith, you know, just a joy and delight to us as a congregation. We also want to see marriages succeed. Every marriage is a, a picture of Christ and his love for the church. And marriages are so deeply connected with our well-being and emotional state. You know, so, so these things matter to us. I was considering some of these quotes that were in your bulletin. Charles Spurgeon said, you are as much serving God and training your own children as you would be if you lead an army to battle for the Lord. You know, recognition that you know, there's a heritage that's being built and we rejoice in that. So you don't have an outline in your bulletin, so I'm going to give it to you verbally. And I have two main points that I want to take out of our text today. 
Uh, two things that jumped out to me. And the first thing is the importance of covenant community. The importance of commu- covenant community. Things I, I was just considering as I was looking at this passage. And in this, I want to think about Lot's daughters especially. You know, they were engaged to men who apparently had no interest in God. If you look back at verse 14, when they heard about the judgment to come, they laughed. They thought that Lot was joking. And even though God's word was right there, being presented right to them, they just didn't listen, ignoring the facts were all around them. Now, we might ask this question, though, with regard to the daughters. You know, you know why were they engaged to these men who had no interest in God's word or anything? Well, you might ask, well, who were they supposed to be engaged to? Who were they supposed to marry? I mean, Lot may have known God, but he moved his family to a city with no interest in God. I mean, he chose to, to live in Sodom, a city known for its wickedness, and surround his family with the inhabitants of the city. And, you know, there were no godly options that were available there. Lot didn't have the intentionality of his brother that his uncle had. His uncle, we'll see in um, Genesis 24, he went on an international search to find a wife for his son Isaac. And so while his daughters would survive this judgment, their fiancés would not, right? In the time before that, they were just planning to marry someone who had totally different values than them. It's a vivid picture of the warning that's, and, and, or the instruction that's given to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting verse 14, we read, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for partnership is righteousness with lawlessness. So Genesis 19 gives a little tragic picture of what happens when two people are unequally yoked. The idea of yoking comes from two oxen that are plowing a field, and you put a yoke across both of them, and you know one can only move as fast as the other one moves, right? So they're kind of hampered by this. Their, their speed is going to be directed by the, the slowest one of the two at the moment. And when we make, we enter into binding relationships with us, we enter into a yoke, especially spiritually, Saying that it's hard to move forward in pursuit of the Lord when, you know, we're so closely connected with somebody who, who uh, is going in a different direction. And of all the relationships that exist in the world, marriage can be, you know, really a powerful yoke. And when a Christian and non-Christian are married, you know, one person takes God and his word seriously and the other doesn't. One moves forward to salvation in Jesus Christ and the other is moving towards judgment. It's just not equal and it's, it's a grief. It's a grief for a Christian spouse married to an unbeliever. You know, as, as a church, we continue to pray. We continue to care, support. You know, we pray for the two to come to one mind together. We pray for the conversion of the unbelieving spouse to come to faith in Christ. But it's a good reminder of the importance of what the Bible says, marrying in the Lord. Marrying another Christian. If you're dating a non-Christian, the the warning of the Bible is here. Do not be unequally yoked. Pursue a Christian marriage. Be patient. Work towards it. But trust God for that work in the future. Don't move past the Lord in it. Now, getting back to this choice of Lot, he had moved his children to a city where they didn't have these godly options. He knew it, but his desire for business and profit, he drove him towards this. You could look to Genesis chapter 13, looking at verse 12 and 13, Genesis 13, 12 and 13. We just see how it started. Genesis 13, 12. 
Abram settled in the land of Canaan, where Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Right from the very beginning there, you know, he knows where he's moving, and he knows the risks that, that are there. Right at the core that we want, especially as we think about parenting, we want our children to develop good Christian friendships. We want our children to marry in the Lord. And one thing that's really important is to be around other Christian, um, around other Christian people and develop the influence that comes in those places. And that's why church and the covenant community is so critical for children. You know, as we gather together, as we are a part of a covenant community together, we build relationships. We work, our, we work out our salvation by applying the word of God together. We build friendships that takes God's word seriously. We respect his law. We find grace in the gospel. We worship and delight in him. And that affects the way that we all go and the way we all grow. I'm reminded that, and, and I believe this fully, that if, we, if you show me your friends, I'll show you your, your future. And the friends that we choose have such a massive impact on who we become. And it's especially important for Christian people to think about that. You know, that's why Christians love to be together with the people of God, because we know we need it. We have a future together. And so do you think it'll make a difference if we pull children from the covenant community of the church? Will it make a difference if parents pull their children out because they think that church doesn't matter, it's too hard to get them there, because the kids complain, because they have a hard time relating, because they haven't learned to sit still, because their sports or other activities or whatever. I mean, do you think it'll make a difference? You know, little children, it, it is a lot of work. Teenagers, is a lot of work. That, that is for sure, and I've learned that. But it doesn't make a difference if they're not there. It does. Because part of discipleship is learning to be in community with others who want to go after the Lord, who walk after the Lord together. And we pray for our children to get that vision, to get a vision of Christian fellowship, to choose to be around Christian people, to help um, a vision to help Christian singles, to have spaces to meet and to know each other, to build lasting relationships. There are no guarantees with anything with children, but I'll tell you this, that ignoring the covenant people of God will undermine our efforts to see our children walk with the Lord. So that's the first one, the importance of covenant community. My, my second big point today is to teach your family the goodness of the Lord. To teach your family the goodness of the Lord. Now, when we look at the life of Lot, it's, it's not a big surprise, at least to me, that his wife would look back at Sodom. I mean, her story, the story of that, fits right in the pattern of the whole chapter and the whole case of their, of their family. Because it really looks like Lot loved his life in Sodom. Remember back in verse 13, the angel tells him to get out of the city. And in verse 15, we see what his response is. So what's his response to his angel's command? Get out of the city. Get your family out of there. Let's look at verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16, but he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. What a picture of God's sovereign grace and salvation, isn't it? But I don't know if you've ever seen any of those movies, you know, like the Avengers or something like that, where there's this big catastrophe that's going to hit this city. 
And something bad is going to happen that people go in panic and they start running here and they run there. And, and that kind of makes sense to us, right? Because something terrible is happening. But here there's something terrible is happening and he's pretty complacent. He's hesitating. He's lingering. Was it because he didn't take God's word seriously? Did he realize how much he was going to lose? Did he think that by staying there he could delay the judgment? Back in Genesis 13, we already saw how, how Abraham and Lot, they, they split up. And, it, and the verse we read shows Lot, he's setting up his tent near the city of Sodom. Go on the next chapter, now he's living in the city of Sodom. Go back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 19, and he's a leader in the city of Sodom. I mean, his life had become so intertwined with the city that was there. And he, he moves and he sets the stage for his family also to love the city of Sodom and to love it more than the kingdom of God. And when they needed to leave, he couldn't leave. And if he loved it, is it any surprise that his family learned from his example to love it as well? Not love in an appropriate way. Like love in a way that it replaces the place of God in his life. Now, it'd be easy to see Lot living the good life, right? He has power, he has money, he's got influence, he's got a family. It's all going to be gone. What kind of life could they have outside of Sodom? I mean, would they be able to, would they be able to start over after that? And so, you know, it's not a great surprise that someone would look back, right? His wife looks back, that's her good life. That's her good life back there that she's leaving behind, at least in her own mind. But the truth is that there was no good life in Sodom. In fact, the good life never existed inside of this wicked city of oppression. What existed, existed only in her mind, only in her dreams. But she still wanted that. It reminds me of what Jesus says in, in Mark eight thirty six when he says, For what good does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, in a place, uh, in, in a position of spiritual leadership, and this is where we get back to Lot, in a position of spiritual leadership, we can never really expect that followers will be more godly than we are ourselves. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, because it does. There are times where followers are more godly than, than their leaders. But those are more of the exceptions. Those are times of God's revival. Those are times when God does something new. That's when God, you know, just um, does a new work of conversion inside of a person's life. But the ordinary pattern is that followers tend to follow leaders and not surpass them. And it's a basic principle in the Bible that we become like the people that we follow. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strict, strictness. You know why judge with greater strictness? Because of the amount of influence that leaders have. And there's a similar uh, principle with families. In this way, Lot showed what was important to him. He showed it to us as we read the text, but he showed it to his family, to his wife and children um, throughout the course of his life and in these last days. Now, God has a vision for influence, a vision even for husbands to lead their wives to greater devotion, greater godliness, greater love for God and his kingdom. And we see that marked in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5, 
25 through 27. We read this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. And the love of, of a husband towards his wife is described here as the love of Christ for his church. It's, and, you know, Christ died for his church. He gave himself up for her. But you see this ongoing work of the washing of water with the word. And, and the instruction to husbands is, you know, minister God's word to your wives. Read the Bible together. Go to church together. Make decisions based off of Christian principles when we obey God's word together. We do this when we repent of sin and we believe in Christ. You know, times when we pray together, you know, it's working out of a passage like this. You know, one thing inside of my marriage is I want Julie, by the end of her life, to say that she knows Jesus better because of our marriage together. Actually, I hope she can say it now. hope we don't have to get all the way to there. should ask her when we get home for lunch. But I also want my kids to know my care for them and that I've pointed them to faith in Christ and, and have eternal life. And so did Lot help his family love God more? And we don't know. But his wife certainly seems to have loved Sodom. And he had his own love for it as well. What did he talk about? Did he talk about money, power? Or did he help his wife to see that life was short and she needed to prepare for the next? There's an explanation that God has an eternal kingdom for his people about being content with what they had and to be content in God. To remind her through their escape from Sodom that God would provide for them, that they didn't need to worry, that they would have a future together. To remain optimistic and hopeful in the Lord for their future. You know, I mean, at least they'd be alive, right? Life uh, was better than you know, life with God was better than all the treasures of Sodom, which were disappearing. So these are all parts of Christian fellowship. These are all ways that we interact with one another. We bring the word of God to bear in people's lives and bring hope in those things. Especially as Christians, and even as Christian husbands. It's the ministry of God's word. What does it say? What hope does it give? Let's look at another passage of Lot's pattern in verse 17. Verse 17 Here we're going to see him bargaining with God. Verse 17, as they brought him out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you were spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. So even in the midst of this salvation where God says, you know, run to the hills. And he's saying, I don't want to go to the hills. I want to go to the city. Can I please go there instead? He's his bargaining that's going on. A discontent with the plan that God gives to him. Now, here's the main thing that we need for our families is to help them to see the goodness of God. And that's, at the same time, more simple and complex. 
You know, it's simple, it's easy to say, but it's more complex in that it doesn't give us a list of rules. We like a list of rules for our children. We'd like a list of rules for our husbands or our wives. Just, just do these things and everything will be okay. But when we look at a life that is grounded in the goodness of God, we see that there's not a, a list of rules which structures that. It requires that we live by faith. It requires us believing in the goodness of God and us acting on it. It means us trusting in the goodness of God in the way that we talk, in the way that we work it out in front of our family. You know, we live in a world that there are so many options, so many like religious options, so much out there, so many different belief systems, so many things that children might grow up and believe in. And, you know, what is it that makes, just humanly speaking, the biggest difference as children face those things? It's a question of, you know, do I, you know, where do I see a good life ending up? You know, do I see that, that Christianity lives to something, leads to something that's good, joyful, loving, delightful, leads me to a sense of purpose for me? Does it, does, does it show me how I can actually be reconciled to God and to live with him forever and ever? You know, is there something good that's in it? Do we display that in the way that we live? And it's not just something that's up here in, in, in our heads. That, that is important. We need to be convinced of the truth of the faith, of the truth of God, of his creation of the world, that Jesus Christ historically came in the world, died for sin, and raised up from the dead. You know, those things are critical. But, you know, often the hardest thing to do is not just the head, but it's the heart. To believe and trust in Christ. Our, our conscience knows there's God. And, and then often when we're speaking to covenant children or about covenant children, you know, we recognize there's a promise is given there. And, and children are inclined to uh, believe their parents and to trust them, you know, looking uh, to their parents for wisdom. But what happens is we often undermine our message by making it look like the Christian life really isn't the good life. We undermine it with our negative messages. Do you demonstrate that the Christian faith isn't so good when your anger flares up? In the conflicts that keep happening at home? And what you demonstrate when you gossip or you complain? You know, do your complaints about your life make it look like you somehow got a raw deal from God? Or your complaints about the church and the things that, you know, with with God's miraculous work inside the church. You know, what is it? Does it communicate a, a message that goes against what you're hoping your children actually develop? We can also undermine our message by making other things look more important than the Christian life. We equate sports success with the good life, or financial independence is the good life, or family and family vacations is the good life. We can undermine our, our message when we're overbearing with our faith. Even with children, it's one of the ways that legalistic religion is so deadly to the soul. And that being overly demanding upon children makes them feel they never measure up to our standards, God's standards. And, and they might ask they really want to live in constant guilt. But that's not how God deals with us. He's, he gives us grace through Jesus Christ. The forgiveness, acceptance to continue to grow in our faith. I was struck by this quote this week. Also in your bulletin from Burke Parsons, he says, children who grow up with legalistic Phariseeism and then rebel aren't rebelling against Christianity, but 
an altogether false religion. Right? The message is undermined in that legalistic Phariseeism, as he says. What they need is the graces of God to know God's forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. His assistance and care and trial and the, and, and the way that we help our children to know those things is by knowing it ourselves. We have failed in so many ways. We failed as parents in so many ways. We failed in our individual lives in so many ways. And we show the goodness of God's gospel and we receive his forgiveness. And we, we acknowledge our need of forgiveness, even to our children. It's why, you know, we will at times confess our sins before our children. Because we'll need to. We know the grace of God is able to forgive us our sins. One of the ways we can create a, a delight in the Lord is, you know, through our devotions with our kids. We do have a number of books out on the book table today as we think through parenting in various ways and caring for them. And then as parents, we are one sinful person helping a child to walk in faith, to walk in faith against their own sin. We're a person in need who's helping another person in need, and that's why we have some humility in this, even confessing our own sins. Again, another quote in your program, Joel Beakey wrote a great book on parenting by God's promises. He says this, the knowledge that we too are sinners should make us understanding and more compassionate towards our erring children. As parents, we must maintain a precarious balance between seeing sin as sin and yet being gracious in dealing with it. The delicate balance we seek is that of God himself. We are God's representatives caring for our children and speaking to them on his behalf. What mercy and grace that he has shown us as we come to him. And even at the same time, right, when we talk about God's grace, we know that God's grace leads to repentance. And so, you know, when we deal with matters of God's law, we, we know we have to deal with them. We deal with matters of God's wisdom. We, we address those directly. We're faithful to them because we know that as, um, you know, we don't, we don't want our we don't want to wrongly pass by sin and behavior that would hold others back for their future. We want children to know the fruit of the Spirit and ask God to help them grow in it. So we build structured homes that give grace and peace and security, ones that are loving and nurturing and mutually respectful and loving. But there's also the element of speaking joyfully about our faith, sharing the difference that it's made inside of your life, Talking about the difference that's made in the lives of others. It's that when you come and worship, that you'd worship with joy. That when you have a chance to serve in the church or inside the community, that you serve with joy and speak of the joy that you have of that. Whatever yoke of Christ that we take up is that we realize that we've been relieved of just far worse burdens. It's a delight to serve Christ and to be freed from sin. It's a delight to serve Christ and to do the things he's called us to. Right? He's prepared these good works ahead of for us. So before I finish, I want to look at one more important thing, especially in verse 29. And it's the reason, ultimately, that Lot was saved. Verse 29, it says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. You know, why was Lot saved? Lot was saved because God remembered Abraham. 
God made a promise to Abraham. He'd made a covenant with him when he brought him into the new land. And, and, and Abraham, in his um, hearing of what was going to happen to Sodom, prayed. Prayed to God numerous times. God, if there's, in the end, he said, if there's ten righteous people there, God, would you not judge that city? Now, there weren't ten righteous people there. But God did deliver Lot. And he did deliver Lot for Abraham's sake. The sake of the covenant and the sake of his prayers for him. What a, what a picture it is, is remember to pray for our children. And to pray for our spouses. And to pray for the people around us. He was delivered for the sake of Abraham. In a very similar way, why will you be saved? How can you be saved from the judgments to come at the end of this life? And it's when God remembers, not Abraham, but Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ and what he did in his death and resurrection. In his death to pay the penalty of your sin so that you could have life. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You you know, when 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 you're the end of your life comes and you stand before that judgment, you want God to remember Jesus and to remember what Jesus has done for you. My prayer is you'd believe in him. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus, you're not following after him that you would. You'd make today a day of decision to follow after him. And you know that as you do, it's a, God has a whole way of life for us. Right? Because Jesus doesn't just set us free from the guilt of our sin, but he sets us free from the power of sin. In so many ways, Lot missed out on this, but we don't need to. You know, he's given us his word to walk in. He's given us word to instruct us. He calls us to be disciples and follow in his ways that, that we would, would know the joy of the Lord. So trust in the Lord Jesus. Know his power. Bring that to bear upon your family, your spouses, and your witness to the world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to a text and something like this, I just know from my own life and I know from life of so many conversations, we know our own failures in so many of these ways. As spouses, as parents, as children, um, Father, even our relationships, we've failed in so many ways. And that's where we ask, Lord, would you remember the Lord Jesus Christ? Forgive us our sins. Father, lead us in a path of righteousness. And God, as we look for the generations to come, whether they're our own children or whether they're the children of our church, we just ask for grace and help and mercy Father, that you would do a work in their lives and bring them towards you. Father, inside a room like this, we know of prodigal children who walked away from you. God, our hearts just break and just asking, oh Lord, would you reconcile them to you and the broken relationships that exist between uh, some of our parents and our children, that you would mend those and, and heal those by the power of the gospel. Father, for we, we know many... Um, we have children who have not yet professed faith in Christ. Father, we do look to that day where they will. And pray, oh God, you do a mighty work of your Holy Spirit in their hearts, bringing them to faith. And we ask, Lord, is that we look at these children who are among us as parents and, and um, as we look as covenant parents, covenant members, that you would help us, oh Lord, just to 
shine forth the wonderful truth of the gospel to help them to know the love of Jesus. And God, inside of our marriages, we pray that you would help us to strengthen them and that our marriages would demonstrate the love of Christ for his church and the responsiveness of Christ, of the church to Christ. Father, help us with that and forgive us our sins where we fail and Father, help us as a congregation to encourage and to see those things grow. God, we know these things only happen through the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. And so we look to him. We look to him by faith. Would you remember us in him? And we know as you do, we'll have life, life forever. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing hymn number...